The transit mask requirement is set to expire. The CDC is poised to extend the federal travel mask mandate for two weeks. That mandate was set to expire on Monday. So if you are planning on getting on a plane or a bus anytime soon, you are still going to have to wear a mask at least for the next two weeks. And the CTA says they're preparing to run their system without enforcing mask requirements if that's the guidance from the U.S. government. And it's time for my weekly conversation with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing. This week we'll talk about the proposed tax on mansions to combat homelessness. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, April 14th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hi, Dennis. How are you today? I'm good, but it's not my birthday. How are you? Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm here in New York City on business, and that timed out well, so I will be celebrating in New York City today. Thank you for the good wishes. Well, I'm glad I didn't get a cake, because you're even farther from me than you usually are. Right. It would be a little tricky to get a cake to me today, but perhaps rain check for when I get back. Well, we've got lots of things to talk about today, so let's start by talking about the, uh, the proposed mansion tax. Tell me about that. This is an idea that groups hoping to fight homelessness in Chicago have supported where the buyers of homes at a million dollars and up, properties at a million dollars and up, would pay a higher transfer tax to the city than they already do in order to fund anti-homelessness programs. So first thing, transfer tax is something you pay any time, both buyer and seller pay in almost any municipality when you transfer a piece of property. This is true everywhere. Chicago's tax uh, is different from that in other municipalities, and, and this proposal would attach only to Chicago. Right now, as the transfer tax stands, uh, in, a one million, in exactly a $1 million transaction, the seller pays $3,000 in transfer tax. The buyer pays $7,500 in transfer tax to the city. Under this proposal, the seller would still pay $3,000. The buyer who has been paying $7,500 would be paying $26,500. All of that increase would go to fund programs that fight homelessness. And as you note in the story, uh, it, it perhaps has a little more support than it than it previously did, than it initially did, rather. And can I say I was surprised by that? When I covered this in 2018, and then there were other, other things that happened in subsequent years, um, when I covered this in 2018, virtually everybody I called who's in the real estate business, not homelessness activists, et cetera, but people I called in the real estate business said, oh no, this would put such a cramp on the luxury housing market and our luxury home market is already lagging and people are very upset about property taxes. People are very upset about uh, sort of the state of Chicago 
people would fight back against this. Well, for various reasons, not that, the tax, the surcharge was never um, added on. Now it's back uh, in part because when I spoke to one of the activists who is supporting this, this effort this year, um, he said that one of the reasons to go for it now is that the luxury home market has been doing so very well. Uh, so I caught, you know, the, the question from my editor, Ann Dwyer, was, well, so what's different now out there? And so I started calling real estate agents, mortgage brokers, in particular, a mortgage broker who was very sort of vocally against this in 2018. And I said, so what's different now? And she said, what's different now is that luxury buyers, in her opinion, would, in her words, not flinch at this additional charge because, uh, first of all, uh, People feel wealthier now. The stock market has been doing well. Uh, most people who remained employed throughout the pandemic got big raises. Uh, generally, people then the economy is rebounding. So people feel wealthy and they have really had to fight hard to get that particular million dollar or million dollar plus home because inventory is so low. There are competitive bidders. You've got to really get out and, and fight to find that house, find the one you want. So she said, people would say, okay, an additional 20,000 per million, 19.5 per million, I'll just take it. A real estate agent said something very similar. He said, you know, uh, they're not gonna. They are gonna grumble about it, and he himself is opposed to it. But he said most buyers in this category would support it. Those are the two I quoted in the story. I spoke to others as well, and this was a surprise to me because once again, this is the difference between paying, between the buyer paying seventy seven hundred dollars per million dollars of purchase price, and twenty six thousand five hundred dollars for million dollars of purchase price. And one of the things, one of the arguments that remains from 2018 unchanged is something I heard from the governmental affairs person for the Chicago Association of Realtors who said, while most people support combating homelessness, one of the questions here is there's no direct connection between my buying a million dollar home and you're becoming homeless. So putting this tax on the buyer or this uh, surcharge tax, surcharge on the tax on the buyers of million dollar homes feels like it's targeting people who really aren't causing the problem, according to him. Um, this is a really interesting one. And it, it's going to be going on for the next several months. Yeah, it is very interesting. And it's interesting to see how sentiment has shifted a little bit and, and what factors into that. I did not expect it. Of course, you know, I'm aware the luxury market is doing a lot better because I've been riding along with it, writing the stories. But when I started calling these people, I was actually, you know, it, it's fun to report a story like that because you're learning something. You're not going out and saying, well, everybody's going to say it's terrible and they all say it's terrible and you write it down and go home. Um, I actually learned that the sentiment among the people I called so far is that uh, it might actually be palatable. Now, what we don't know, I mean, you know, th those are the people I called. Uh, this is also a relatively new issue. Perhaps a groundswell forms behind opposing it. I have no idea. Uh, the question, the, the reason it's revived or it's being revived now because there is a push to put it on a referendum ballot in the city. And one alderman I spoke to, Walter Burnett, said he would, several aldermen have said this. He said to me specifically that he would really like to see it as a referendum because everybody really has a stake in this. Everybody in the city 
has a stake in what happens with this question. And one of the things he said is, you know, you might assume that all the buyers of million dollar homes, million dollar and up homes would say, oh no, don't don't add this tax to my bill. But he said, many of them might vote for it. Not that he's saying they should. Many of them might vote for it because they, like so many other people, have experienced what the problem is with, the growing problem is with homelessness in Chicago. This is going to be interesting to watch if it gets on the ballot, if it gets on the referendum ballot and how that referendum goes, as well as all the other discussion, whether it gets on the ballot or doesn't, because this is, I mean, there's a lot of money at stake here. So real estate brokerages were doing pretty well in 2021 for many reasons we have discussed, but one in particular was kind of lagging. And you you wrote a bit about that. Tell me about that. This is the data that I get every year at this time is from Real Trends, an industry consultancy based in Colorado. They create something called the five, the Real Trends 500, which is the top brokerages uh, around the country by volume, by number of, by dollar volume, by number of homes sold. They also break it out. We'll have stories later on individual brokers and teams. But when you just look at the brokerage, um, uh, it was interesting to see. We cover this every year, and over in the past years, I'd been looking at how brokerages changed places. For example, just a couple of years ago, at properties, Eclipsed Caldwell Banker at properties had grown and grown and moved up the list. Eclipsed uh, Caldwell Banker as number one. Caldwell Banker had been there for a long time, and and at properties continues to grow and, as you know, changed its name with a big acquisition to At Properties Christie's International. But this year, looking at the fact that, so this is 2021 data, um, looking at the fact that the housing market really boomed through all of 2021, uh, home sales, home sale dollar volume was up 29%, according to the data that Midwest Real Estate data gave me, the dollar value of homes sold in 2021 was up 29%. So let's compare the volume growth at all of these brokerages as reported by Realtrends. 29%, there were three that were at basically following along there. They were, uh, the biggest growth was at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Chicago, uh, and at Properties, at Properties Christie's and Baird and Warner, all sort of followed that wave of 20 percent plus growth. Caldwell Banker, which again used to be the biggest brokerage by volume in Chicago, grew by only 10.5 percent. That's about a third of what the market did. That doesn't look good. You know, when the tide is rising and and you're sort of not rising at that pace, there's a question there. Um, and then there's a set, there's a second Caldwell Banker in our region. Um, it primarily services outer ring suburbs and downstate towns. That's called Caldwell Banker, the realty, the real estate group, owned separately from the Caldwell Banker that people in the city and uh, immediate suburbs are aware of. And that too also didn't grow by the size of the wave, but a lot of its business is in downstate uh, cities, not here where we had this big boom. I don't know the data for those cities. So Caldwell Banker, uh, appears to Caldwell Banker, the, the primary one, appears to have grown at about a third what the market did. Not great news if you're looking for who's really got a lock on this market, who's in step with what's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, all of those are, are very recognizable names, you know, when we think about the, the, the names in real estate. But that seems like it's been around for a while. We, we know that brand. Is there any specific thing going on that might indicate why we, we saw that slower growth there? I don't know, because I haven't really gotten a strong response from the firm. The one thing we ought to keep in mind is that generally, when I hook up with a real estate agent to buy or sell a house, I really go with the agent much more than the brand. The brand matters, but it's much more likely that my cousin, my neighbor down the block, somebody I worked with before, whatever brand they are, is really what matters. But um, Caldwell Banker, the one thing I do know is that last year, the data for 2020, which we reported this time last year, um, Caldwell Banker was the only one whose volume dropped at a time when volume was going up. So this growth of 10, they were down by 7% that year, up by 10%. Um, in 2021. So they've certainly turned the corner. But I don't know the the response I got was sort of a prepared statement that really just said we're proud that we grew by 10%. But that doesn't really address the fact that uh, the other brokerages grew by over 20, and in some cases, nearly 29%. So I, I honestly, I don't have an answer other than um, we need to watch what the data does over the course of the next year. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, let's shift to some other reporting that you did, and, and that is two separate reports that, that show that it's easier to afford a home in Chicago now than it has been historically. Tell me about this. Yeah, and so this is another one that doesn't present itself on its fate. When you first look at the numbers, you would think that's not the case because our prices have been going up so fast. But as you know from our many conversations, our prices aren't going up as fast as those in most other cities. That plays a part. So there were two reports out in recent weeks, one from Adam, which is a a property data service, and the other from First American Financial. And both showed that compared to the historical norm, um, going in Adam's case, going back to 2005, it's easier to afford a home now, or it, sorry, it was easier to afford a home in the first quarter of 2022 than at any times uh, going back to 2005. That's because wages are higher and primarily interest rates are way lower or were way lower through the first quarter of um, 2022. Way, uh, interest rates are going up very, very quickly, so this may not continue to be true uh, or as true as it was last quarter. But um, the other one, the report from First American Financial, they found that the Chicago area was in the top three among major cities for improved affordability over the course of the past year. And once again, it was because our home prices aren't, weren't going up as fast. Uh, you know, it, as we've talked about, affordability is running away in places like Seattle and Phoenix and Dallas. They've got the same interest rates we have. So relatively, affordability is going away much faster there than it is here. So we've our affordability has been uh, not going away quite as fast because because uh, our home prices haven't been going up as fast. Yeah, we'll have to revisit this topic after we see what's how it all shakes out with interest rates. I'd be curious to see what happens there. Almost every story on my slate for the next few weeks has in it, of course, interest rates could change all that. Um, because they, you know, they've already gone up by half uh, in the course of, uh, I guess, March and early April, and they may go up even further. And and so almost everything we look at in real estate in the near future is going to have a, uh, an interest rate hook. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, more more on that one for sure. So let's talk about a site in Lincoln Park that was slated for five condos, but just kidding, it's going to get a giant mansion instead. <laughs> just kidding, yeah. Uh, yeah, this was really interesting to me. A, a piece of property on Hudson in Lincoln Park sold for $4 million last week. And I started looking into the records and other things and found that a developer had just bought it or really the the term would be assembled it in October. In October, in that blank spot that you see now, or until October, in that blank spot that you see now, there were two 1880s buildings, real classic Chicago red brick limestone, three flats from the 1880s. A developer bought each of them for 1.5 million, 3 million total. Uh, The developer is called Barrett Homes. They've built condos on lots like this around Lincoln Park. I've written about some of them. They were planning to build five condos on this site, priced at $1.5 to $2 million, their representative tells me. So again, they just bought it in October, six months for $3 million. Six months later, they sold it for $4 million. And I got confirmation from both the agent for the seller, that developer's agent, and the agent for the buyer that this is an end user who bought it, who wants to build a house on it. Uh, The agent for the buyer would not disclose the person's name. That won't be in the public records for a while. Certainly I'll pursue that. But what the agent said is there are, you know, these multi-lot houses in Lincoln Park, they have proliferated over the course of the past, well, it'd be more than 15 years. It's not quite 20 years in those blocks south of Armitage, primarily south of Lincoln Park High School. We've seen houses on six lots and four lots. And in this case, two. And so what the agent said is it's really hard to find a proper a site like this now. So they went in with a pretty aggressive offer, knowing that the developer had paid $3 million in October. They offered $4 million and bought it for that amount in April. Uh, and uh, they will build, they can build up to about 11,000 square feet by right. Uh, because it's, a, it's about a 5,000 square foot lot, or I just said that wrong, but but they can build, I don't remember the size of the lot, but they can build uh, up to about 11,000 feet. We don't know that that's what they'll build. The one thing the agent told me is no details are set yet. Haven't hired an architect or anything. You know, they had to find the site first. But it's sort of interesting to see there would have been five condos in the one and a half to $2 million range. Now there, there will be a single house, like a lot of those sites in Lincoln Park. They've paid $4 million for the land, and they could top that. They could up, uh, their total investment could top $11 million with construction prices, what they are, if they build the size that this lot can take. If they do what some people have done and, and really set aside a big, uh, side yard, backyard, and build a smaller house than 11,000 feet, obviously they're not going to spend quite as much. But if they built to the size this lot would accommodate, they could have a total investment of over $11 million. What an interesting shift for that developer, though, who went in thinking, okay, I'm going to turn this into condos with probably a, a long-term plan of either selling them or you know, selling the entire property or selling them individually and managing them to have someone come in and say, I want that land. I don't, I don't think it was an easy choice. They probably had to say, well, let's see. I, uh, I didn't check, but I would imagine that Barrett, who has built in other locations, uh, also has some other sites 
Uh, I didn't look for that when when looking into this story, but I would or into the records for this site. But I would assume they have other properties. It's really interesting to see. We've had a couple of stories over the past few years of this lot was going to be condos and now it's going to be a mansion. This lot was going to be a mansion and now it's going to be condos. There's one on how where this old 18th century dairy was torn down and i was i followed it over the course of two or three turns in the story and it was going to be an even bigger house than this because it was a bigger site and it was sold to condo developers because the people building the house as i understood it i think i was never able to confirm this moved out of state rather than build. So we're seeing, you know, people assemble these properties and then is it going to be a house? Is it going to be condos? Is it going to switch? Uh, But the latest is one going from condos to mansion. Well, here's another one we'll have to talk about again in the future when we when we know more. All right, let's take a look at some houses. So the uh, the co-founder of Halo Top Ice Cream has sold a Lincoln Park home. Tell me about this one. You know, I should have tried to get Speaking of your birthday, I should have tried to get some Halo Top here to tie it in. I know, right? I'm sorry. I was I wasn't really thinking. Uh, Doug Bouton, who is one of the two, uh, the the man who invented Halo Top ice cream or created the recipe is Justin Wolverton, but his partner in the firm was Doug Bouton. Uh, they built Halo Top, which is one of the guilt-free. Uh, ice creams and became the biggest. They, I, I found they grew from, in the course of five years, the company grew from $230,000 in revenues to $100 million in five years. They were in every, refri- every refrigerated case of every grocery store in America, it seems. Uh, right after they sold the company to Blue Bunny, or sorry, to Wells, which is based in Iowa and makes Blue Bunny ice cream, uh, Doug Bouton kept the international part, the international sort of marketing part of uh, Halo Top, moved to Chicago, also started a chocolate company, a guiltless chocolate company called uh, Gatsby, and bought this mansion. Uh, it's in it's in Lincoln Park, as we said. They paid $3.4 million for it in 2019, and then sold it this week for just under 3.73. They were there for only about two years, uh, they made some improvements. I couldn't reach them, but their agent told me they had made some improvements. They did a lot of sort of upgrading the outdoor spaces. They created a kids' playground on one of the roof, uh, one of the upper levels, not on a rooftop. They built out the rooftop of the house with cooking and pergola and that sort of thing. They made some improvements. I don't know whether they turned a profit because they only sold it for a little bit more than they paid for it. And again, made some improvements in between, but it's a really nice house. And um, I think it would be a nice place to stock up on Halo Top because there are about six refrigerators in that house or freezers in that house. I counted in the photos. Well, there'd have to be. I mean, if you, it's kind of the house that Sugar built. If he's all about yeah. ice cream and chocolate, the house that low sugar built. That's right. That less bad sugar, right? The yeah. health, healthier sugar alternatives. That's yeah. I'm sure their their PR team's coming after me now for misspeaking. I'm sure. Well, I hope they'll call because the sellers wouldn't. But yeah, it, it it is kind of you know it's fascinating because. I mean, I've seen Halo Top. I think I've eaten Halo Top. I had no idea it had grown so quickly. When you start reading the old stories on it, you know, there are stories from 2013, 14 saying, oh, this is interesting. And then there are stories from 2018 saying, 
oh my God, this thing has exploded. It's a fascinating business. The the guiltless or low guilt, or there are a lot of other terms, um, sweets business is huge. What, what Gatsby, the term Gatsby, his new chocolate company uses is permissibly indulgent. Oh, I didn't know we needed permission to be indulgent, but okay, I hear that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, there is. There are a lot of products kind of uh, that use that sort of language around like, because um, they don't want to say like low. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff that's like the diet version or the low sugar version. But to right. to kind of push forth in a like this is a new realm sort of puts a positive spin on it for sure. So, I agree. So let's talk about a house. This is not a Mies van der Rohe house, but is one where Mies van der Rohe lived. Tell me about this one. Yeah, this is and it's as un Mies van der Rohe as most people can imagine. Yeah. Even though it overlooks Mies van der Rohe way, uh, he lived Mies van der Rohe, who of course essentially pioneered the modernist style of high-rise building. Uh, just a few blocks from where he lived, there are four that he built on Lakeshore Drive. He also in the Federal Center and elsewhere. There are Mies van der Rohe buildings, all the the former IBM building on the Chicago River. But he, so he comes to Chicago in 1937, and by 1940 he has moved into this building. He hasn't yet built uh, buildings in Chicago, so he's not going to move into a Mies building. He moves into this 1917 co-op building. It's now it is right next door to the Ritz Carlton uh, and the and the water and water tower place at the time. Of course, those wouldn't have been there. The building was built in 1917. He moved in in 1940. He owned this unit until 1969 when he died. And then in 2012, Two men bought it. It was it was sort of faded. It had had several owners. They were going to do a renovation anyway, and then sort of went with the Mies part of it, even though uh, these nice windows overlooking the park don't necessarily say Mies van der Rohe. You can kind of see there on the right, and I think we have another photo, a Mies van der Rohe touch here on the right as well. You can see Mies had put in these marble cantilevered marble shelves They'd been removed, but the marble was still there, used for a credenza in the unit. So they brought the marble back. Here you can really see that shelf. They brought the marble back, built out this cantilevered shelf. Didn't necessarily need a shelf, but wanted a Miesian detail to restore. Did this. Um, the other thing I love that uh, is traces back to Mies is that the bathtub is the bathtub in the bathroom that he used is still there. So. Um, Make of that what you will, but it's a really nice. Here's another shot of that shelf. It's a really nice place. It uh, so again, it's from 1917. It's by I always mispronounce his name, but Robert de Gaulier, who was an architect who did these beautiful 19 teens and 1920s, primarily co-op and apartment buildings. This has the big rooms you can see here in the living room. There's a seating area and a grand piano and some more space. All those windows on the right there look. Uh, look south across Pearson at the Museum of Contemporary Art, which of course is derived from Mies, not designed by Mies van der Rohe, but Joseph Paul Kleihus, who was also a German architect, designed it in a Miesian style. So you're sitting in Mies's old apartment off Mies van der Rohe way, looking at a Mies-derived building, which I think is kind of cool as a fan of Chicago architectural history. But going back to the size of the rooms, the dining room, 
is what is it 25 feet long and the sellers told me you know nobody uses a dining room that size but they didn't want to chop it up so what they've done is sort of zone it into dining and television so it's more like sort of a modern great room it has you can see beyond those doors it has this nice long gallery hallway um and it's just it's uh, if we didn't have the Mies van der Rohe connection it would still be a really pretty property to show you but it has but this is where Mies van der Rohe lived when he was revolutionizing mid 20th architecture in the mid 20th century. All of this molding uh, on the walls was recreated. It was taken down, redone. The plaster on the walls is new. The It's now air conditioned. I think we'll get to the kitchen, which is entirely new and really sharp. Here it is. That that cork floor just kills me. It looks, it looks like it could have been there since 1958. Um, it's brand new or it's a couple of years old, but it's it's a cork floor, which is a wonderful thing when you've when you're standing on it. Most people know they combined the kitchen and the butler's pantry into a kitchen, which at the far end there has sort of a breakfast bar. So you've got that dining room we saw in the Bay of Windows. You've also got this breakfast bar. Beyond it was a maid's room. Um, they haven't quite. They've mostly used it as sort of a, a mud room, but it it could be a small bedroom. It could be an office, and then there are two large bedrooms. One of which, the larger of which, the primary bedroom, is not the one Mies slept in. They've read in his autobi uh, in a biography of him that he didn't sleep in this bedroom, the primary, which looks north. And the nice thing is uh, that it looks out over there. There's a parking platform of the building next door, so you get a lot of daylight. This is the bedroom. Is this the one? Yeah, this is the bedroom. Mies slept in. He slept in the second bedroom. Nobody knows why. And that bathroom, you can kind of see the bathtub there. If we keep going, that's the bathtub. Everything else is new, but the bathtub was there when he was. Um, I don't mean to keep emphasizing the bathtub. It's just this is something that Ludwig Mies van der Rohe actually would have touched uh, for the 29 years he lived there. Um, so once again, I think I've already said it. It's really nice. I'd be wanting to show it to you anyway. But I get to use, I get to say Mies van der Rohe as well, because he lived here while, while creating buildings all over the world. That's very, very cool. I mean, you're exactly right. You said it perfectly. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It has a lot of beautiful detail that, that it's a couple of pieces perhaps have been, re, have been preserved, but mostly restored. And so it still has that kind of early 1900s charm to it and it feels very well preserved and, and really kind of an homage to that style but this layer over it of this is where Mies van der Rohe lived kind of adds such a cool layer and I love the bedroom thing I'm so curious why did he not sleep in the primary bedroom yeah I don't know did he use the first as an office I, I don't really know but it, it's kind of interesting and and you know they've read his biography they also have said that there are pictures of him here in the dining room smoking a big cigar uh, which you know is from his era uh, and I mean, just the idea that, you know, you're, you're in Mies's old house on Mies van der Rohe way, Mies van der Rohe and Pearson, um, you know, this is about as Chicago as it gets, as about as Chicago in the 20th century as it gets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and check out the photos. There's a lot of really cool, very pretty details in this house. All right. Well, Dennis, what's coming up in the week ahead? Uh, interest rates, interest rates, interest rates. Like I said earlier, right. <laughs> I'm looking at what interest rates will do to the second home market. Uh, we're and and a couple of other stories along those lines. Very good. Well, we will uh, all look forward to hearing more about that next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. 
Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Boeing's order backlog shrinks as the Ukraine war risks multiply. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Cranes invites all general counsels, chief legal officers, and senior in-house counsels to our general counsel breakfast on May 17th. The event will feature Chicago's top general counsels offering perspective on current legal trends in business and litigation. Plus, our exclusive panel takes a closer look at how general counsels can best manage the risks and challenges in today's landscape. CLE credit will be available. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com slash events. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Art will get around 100 contemporary works from trustee and leading international collector Demetrius Daskalopoulos, a donation that includes pieces by American artists David Hammonds, Robert Gober, and Kiki Smith. As Crane's contributor Steve Johnson noted in his reporting, the gift is exceptional in that it's being made jointly to the MCA and to New York's Guggenheim Museum and its foundation, the first time that a major donation has been split between two museums. In addition to the 100 works slated for Chicago and New York, around 140 pieces from the Daskalopoulos collection will go to the National Museum of Contemporary Art in Athens, as well as 110 pieces to the Tate Museum in London. Walgreens is reportedly rationing baby formula as a recall from Abbott Labs and other producers affects supplies. The Deerfield-based pharmacy chain is allowing customers to buy three formula products per visit, according to reporting from Patch. The policy applies to all of Walgreens' roughly 9,000 U.S. locations. The Wall Street Journal reported that other major retailers, including CVS, Target, and Kroger, which is the parent company of Mariano's, are all enacting similar policies. The rationing follows a recall from Abbott Labs, which is facing several class-action lawsuits claiming the company's baby formulas are making infants sick with bacterial infections, some of whom have been hospitalized or died. However, some retailers were reportedly concerned about supply issues before Abbott's recall, blaming supply chain bottlenecks. Walgreens said in a statement to Cranes, quote, due to increased demand and various supplier challenges, infant and toddler formulas are seeing constraints across the country. Boeing decreased its order tally by about 100 planes last month to account for purchases at risk of collapsing due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The plane maker had 76 net aircraft orders at the end of March, down from 179 a month prior. That according to the company's website on Tuesday. Bloomberg reported that on a gross basis, sales rose to 167 jets for the first quarter, boosted by the 737 MAX after the plane maker booked orders for 50 aircraft in March. But on a net basis, Boeing trailed rival Airbus in sales and deliveries as the company outlined its financial exposure to the war. Unlike its European counterpart, the Chicago-based manufacturer is subject to a U.S. accounting rule requiring Boeing to remove from its backlog orders that are at risk because of customer finances, geopolitics, sanctions, and other factors, even when the underlying contracts remain in place. The planes are then added back to the net sales totals once the risks subside. Bloomberg also noted that Boeing dropped 152 aircraft from its backlog due to that accounting requirement in March, two-thirds of which were related to the war in Ukraine, according to a spokesperson. The company logged a negative net adjustment of 141 planes for the quarter, 
and the hit was the largest in months for Boeing, sales of which had been boosted by the accounting rule as airlines began to recover from the impact of the pandemic. Boeing delivered 41 planes in March, including 34 of the 737 MAX jets as it stepped up production of its top-selling jetliner. The manufacturer delivered 95 jets in the first quarter, up from 77 a year prior. France-based Airbus had 140 deliveries and 83 net orders for the quarter. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.